morning, if you felt like you just drank from a fire hose and think, wow, that was a lot, a couple things for you. Um, that video, um, the, the main part of that video is on the back side of your bulletin, so you can uh, take a look at that and bring that home with you. So we'll, we won't cover everything, we'll just focus on chapter 40. And then if you'd like to, um, get a, a, a full copy of the Bible project about the book of Isaiah, which I found very helpful for study and preparation. Uh, those are available at the Welcome Center, and they, they look like this. So you can pick up one of those as well, too. Well, this morning and today, uh, we begin the second half of the Gospel of Isaiah. And what we're going to focus on this morning in chapter 40 on page 619, we'll get there really close, there's one key word I hope that you will come away from this message, and that is this, the word incomparable. Incomparable. We will see the glory of our Lord begun to be revealed in this chapter, and then that glory will be repeated throughout chapters 40 through 66. But today we, we turn the corner. And because of that key word, the uh, name of this message is entitled, The Incomparable Comfort That God Gives Us and The Incomparable King That We Have. Yeah, uh, Isaiah, his, his name means Yahweh saves. And we will see how God saves in this particular passage of scripture. The last word from last week was that God would send his people into exile in Babylon, as the video showed us. But the last word that we heard is not the last word. In fact, what we're going to focus on are two things, and this is where we're going to go. Number one is in the first third of the scripture that we'll take a look at, the first third of the chapter, it's all about comfort. Comfort, comfort, my people. Think about all the ways that people have sought comfort this weekend, this hot weekend. We see comfort in air conditioning. We see comfort in ice cream, maybe licorice ice cream. Uh, we see comfort in a boat ride, in bucket lists, in busyness. So my question for you is this, what kind of comfort could God actually give? Could our Father's comfort be better? We'll take a look at that. Then the, the rest of the two-thirds of the rest of the chapter is set up by a series of 18 questions in the English Bible. 18 questions. Here the English Bible helps us. And the whole idea, what's the point behind that? The whole idea is for listeners in Babylon in exile and listeners in our church, church, excuse me. And whoever might catch this message, the question is this, who, is, who can you compare the king to? Who can you compare the king to? And if I was sitting next to you, you would probably hear me say as I read this, wow, 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 wow. Question after question and after question to set up the fact that there is no one that's comparable to him. So I'd invite you to follow along the book of Isaiah chapter 40. We're going to read all, all the verses. And uh, then we'll take some takeaways here as we look at God's word. It's alive and active. You ready? Here we go. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for that she has received from the Lord's hand double for her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. 
The rough ground shall become level and the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all the people will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Verse 6, a voice says, cry out. What sh- what? And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Verse 9, you who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Don't be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the Lord, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See his reward. Another word for that is wage. Another word for that is payment. See, his, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd and he gathers the lambs in his arms. He carries them close to his heart and he gently leads those that have young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breath of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills of a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who is it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scale and he weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for an altar of fires nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are nothing. The regards by him, they are regarded by him as worthless. Less than nothing. With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you like him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. Did you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heaven like a canopy and he spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground that he blows on them and they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls them forth each by name because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is an everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary and is understanding no one. No one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. 
Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary, and they will walk and not be faint. This is God's word, and it's active and alive. And there is no one comparable to him. In fact, his incomparable comfort is voiced repeatedly. Did you catch in the first 11 verses the tenderness of the shepherding care of our Lord? How attractive and delightful are his promises? And he uses different voices, three different voices, repeatedly. The voices aren't identified. They're not important, but the message is. And the message is this, that the penalty has been paid for. The penalty is the atonement for our sin. The first voice, you see the word voice in verse 3. Did you catch it there? It is the glory of the Lord will be revealed and we will see the glory of the Lord laid out again and again and again in the remaining chapters. And his glory is not what we think. God is preparing people's hearts for his coming. There is a declaration that Yahweh has come, Yahweh has come in the person of Jesus and his worldwide revelation changes the world and changes people's lives. We've been talking about that as a church, haven't we? We've been talking about joining Jesus on his mission. And one of the questions that we've asked is this, what kind of conversations are you and I having with pre-Christians? I was reminded of that again this week as a friend of mine reached out to a waitress on Wednesday for supper. Take comfort in this, friends. God is preparing people. He is on the loose. And we join him on his mission. That's the first voice, this incomparable voice, this incomparable comfort that he gives. His second incomparable comfort is something that we're very well aware of, is that God's word endures forever. That second voice that we see in verse, uh, what is that? Verse 6. You see it there? This is the second voice. And the metaphorical language that's used is one that is transitory or temporary to what is permanent. What is transitory? Us, flesh, our lives. As we get older, we kind of scratch our heads and go, how did life go so fast. Amen? How did I get this old? And it's compared to God's word. And, it, and it, God's word endures forever. I love the Gideon ministry. I was introduced to the Gideon ministry through my father-in-law. But it's just a simple ministry of getting the scriptures in, God's, in people's hands, right? And God's word is alive and active. And as a friend said, when something's alive and active, it grows. <laughs> it changes. It has applications. You see it in a new way. I've said this before jokingly. Sometimes I'll read God's word and I'll think, did my wife sneak an extra verse in there overnight? No, it's alive and it's active. There's been no more... No, no book more criticized in the world yet has stood up to criticism than the Word of God. The third voice. The third voice is a tender voice. The third voice says that the Lord is strong and he is gentle. 
The might and the tenderness of the sovereign Lord is one both of might and tenderness. And you see that. Alec Moiter is an Australian theologian. I've used him in this series. He said, look at the verse 10. Look at the word reward. It can mean wages. It can mean pay, payment. Isaiah, at this point in his book, have not explained the work of the Lord. He hasn't explained what the rewarder, reward earner does or what his reward is. That word is a pronoun. But we know this. We know that the work that is ahead of him is to go to the cross. And his reward, his reward is you and me, the redeemed one. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 8 quotes David, the psalmist, 68, 18, and he says this, the Apostle Paul writing in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 7, he says this, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That is why it says, when he, Jesus, ascended on high, he took many captives. Other translations said, those who were in captivity. Captivity to what? To sin. And he gave gifts to men. Wow. So what do I do with this? Understand this. The Christian life is both a change of mind and a change of heart. Christianity is robust in its intellectual and mindful doctrines, theology, implications, and applications. And as important as that is doctrine, theology, memorization, and study, the Christian life is also experiential. It is life and heart changing. It leads to actions and sacrifices and satisfactions and peace in times of suffering and strength, courage, not in whipped up, hyped up ecstasy, but in encounter with the living God. Oh friends, this is so different than other world religions. Think about this, the Holy One who even heavenly beings in Isaiah chapter 6, the cherubim that we looked at, the holy ones can't even look at him. They cover themselves. They cover their feet. This is the one that wants to have a relationship with you and me. That is so different from other world religions. Certainly, Allah, you don't know him that way. Hinduism and Buddhism... And mere rationality? No wonder there's a beautiful song that goes, There is none like you, none like you, the faithful one, Jesus. There is none like him. He is incomparable. And he gives us his comfort. His comfort in his word. His comfort in that he's making a way and his gentleness. And so Isaiah uses an interjection here. We see it in verse 9 and verse 10. We see this interjection that he says, stop and see. So let me give you an illustration of what that, was, that looked like. Last summer, my uh, oldest son said, Dad, do you want to go to the Minnesota S State Fair? 
and I hadn't been in 35 years. How many of you have been to the Minnesota State Fair in the recent years, okay? So we went, and, and so I hadn't been there in, in a long, long time. And man, what an experience. I mean, there were mini donuts and corn dogs and tacos, and I'm trying to lose weight, and it was not helpful. And I remember stopping my son. It was in the middle of the week, and stats later said it was 112,000 people there. It would double almost. It, it has doubled in, in, in the past. In the past, and I remember sitting in the street, one of the streets, with all of these mini donuts and the food and the overpriced pickups, and uh, and seeing all these people. And I looked at my son and I said, "Champ, look at all this. There's a massive amount of people. This is crazy." He said, "Yeah, Dad, it's it is pretty crazy." And the point is, I I just I wanted just to kind of stop. And just kind of drink in, what am I seeing in this mass amount of humanity of hungry people? Isaiah the prophet uses the word see. Stop and behold. Don't, don't, don't let this pass up. What are we supposed to see? We're supposed to see the greatness of the incomparable king. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. The incomparable king is, is gloriously revealed. And, and, and when you get to the second part, you see his power in verse 12. You see his wisdom in verse 13. And you see his immensity in verse 15 through 17. And then he comes to idols. He comes to this idea of idols in verse 18 through 20, his sole de deity. And you almost get, some commentators say, you almost get a sarcastic humor. I don't understand sarcastic humor. I, I don't, but I know that some people are really, really good at it. And, and Isaiah, as filled with the Spirit and led by the Spirit to write as the Spirit leads us, talks about idols. And so the first question we ask in this incomparable king is, what about idols? Uh, John Calvin says the problem is not that we make idols. The problem is that we automatically make idols idols. The heart is a perpetual idol factory. Idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator for our hope and happiness, our significance and security. Two really smart people, Martin Luther and Tim Keller, had these words to say, just to clarify what idols are. Luther says, question and explore your own heart thoroughly and you will find that it embraces, you will find out if it embraces God alone or not. Do you have it in your heart to expect nothing but good things from God? Especially when you're in trouble and in need. And does your heart, in addition, give up and forsake everything that's not God? Then you will have one true God, Luther said. On the other hand, if your heart's attached to and does rely on something else from which you hope to receive more good and more help from God. And when things go wrong, do you, instead of fleeing to him, flee from him? Luther says, then you have another God. You have a false god. You have an idol. Dr. Timothy Keller writes this. Idolatry is loving anything more than Jesus. Idolatry is treating anything as more important than Jesus for your meaning in life, for your happiness, for your security and hope, and for your own self-regard. The reason why it's so important to understand the sin of idolatry is that it can be growing in part of your life for a long time. 
And all these things going on for a long time lead to overt examples of lying or cheating or adultery or gossip because idolatry can lead to these things. So what's important to grasp is this. Sin is not just doing bad things. It's turning good things into ultimate things because it ruins your soul. It destroys community and dishonors God. And I would add this. It ravages your heart in your inner woman or your inner man. So where is the hope? That sounds like the law. It is. Where is the gospel? Idols may be our greatest threat to our devotion to our Father, but listen to this. Nothing is greater, is nothing is a greater threat to idols than God's devotion to us. Hear that. Nothing is a greater threat to idols than God's devotion to us in a simple prayer. A heartfelt prayer. God, help me. I want to loose, be loosed from this idol. Whatever that is, God hears that prayer. He's an incomparable king. There's a subtle shift. Did you catch the subtle shift <clears throat> that happens in verses 22 through 24? It's a shift from the created world management of the created world to our Father's government of history and of the cosmos. I love this next verse in uh, verses 25 through 26. And we ask the question, who can count the stars? I didn't know this before, but Babylon, who this uh, context of these verses were set in, you caught that in the video, these were written for people in exile in Babylon, taken to a foreign country, Think of Daniel, if that helps you. Babylon was world-renowned for knowing about stars. They were the star people. If anybody had their handle on astronomy and stars, it was Babylon. Also mathematics. And as inspired by the Holy Spirit, Isaiah uses the star example. According to experts, there were about 5,000 stars visible at night, according to ancient Israel, in ancient Israel's time. Astronomers now estimate there are 400 billion stars in the Milky Way, and there are 125 billion galaxies in the universe. That is a massive number. That is 10 billion trillion. And God created all of these. The Holy One, the Holy One of Israel calls them by name. He counts them. Uh, Psalm 147 says this, he determines the number of the stars and he gives them all by name. I wonder if there's one called Kirk Melancer. I have no idea. Who cares? But the more important thing is this. When God comes in the flesh, he picks up the star counting. And he moves from star counting to hair counting. Jesus said, what is the price, Luke 12, 6 through 7, what price of five sparrows, what is the price of five sparrows and two copper coins? This is God in the flesh. The glory of God who walked on planet earth. He says this, not about stars, but he says, what's the price of five sparrows, two copper coins? Yet God does not forget, the word means neg neglect, 
God does not forget a single one of them. Verse 7, and the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are more valuable or superior or distinguished from. You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. He cares. He really, really does. I've been saying this prayer for the last couple weeks for my extended family. I've been saying a prayer as I walk my dog in the morning. I said, Lord, you're a father. And I'm a dad too. And you get this. You care about my kids more than I care about my kids. And so you're safe for me just to lay out my requests. Lay out my requests. And they're not dumb to him. If he cares about my hair, <laughs> he care about my kids. Well, that's a tap-in putt. Third thing of this incomparable king. What about the weary? First we ask the question, what about idols? Who counts stars? And how about the weary? Have I been forgotten? Our king is unforgetting and self-giving. These are the climax verses of the chapter, and they stress the impossibility that this great creator could forget or desert his own people. His strength transforms me. And listen, this is really important to listen. The strength is differentiated between when we say, you got this, to what the Bible says, he holds you. Sometimes we say as Christians, you got this. These verses say, he holds you. This is not an injection of transforming strength serum. The Holy Spirit transforms you and me with daily repentance and filling of the Holy Spirit transforming you. I love scripture sometimes when it's so raw. And verse 27 introduces kind of a court scene. We say this, have we been dismissed? Why do you do some of these things? Where are you? Have you forgotten about Jacob? Have you forgotten about Israel? Isn't that beautiful? What an example that we can come before the Lord. And the creator or the creator of is a participle in that verse, verse 28. Why does that matter? A participle represents an ongoing action between a creator and creation. A perpetual engagement. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is being made into a new creation by the creator. I'm being made into his likeness. And so in this climax we ask the question, what about the weary, the, 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 the most robust, those who are in their prime and their strength? Don't you, wish you had, don't you wish you had the wisdom you have now, like 30 years ago when you were strong? And all God's people said, oofta, yes. Yeah. So he uses this idea about youth. And he drops this word and he says, those who wait on the Lord. It means to put your hope but it can also mean to literally lay down and to stretch yourself before him. 
That's what it means. To lay down and to stretch yourself before him. God's glory is, is revealed. In Romans chapter 8, 18, it says that our present suffering are not worthy compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. The glory that will be revealed in us. Trusting God, waiting on God, helps us when he delays or is silent regarding our prayers. If he delays, it's for good reasons. His actions are founded on his wisdom and love. David said in Psalm 37, 34, wait for the Lord, keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. As we wait on the Lord, our fears are addressed. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust you and I will not be afraid for the Lord my God is my strength and my song. He is my salvation, Isaiah 12, 2 said. Fear, so, so much fear, so much fear in my life happens when I take my eyes off my Father and I start looking at my surroundings. And when we pass through the experience of death, cling to this, his goodness and faithfulness follows me all the days of my life. That word follow, I've shared this before in Psalm 23, means to hunt, to seek something, to track down. He tracks us down with his faithfulness and goodness. Let me give you an assignment, an assignment that will be helpful to you as we go into the book of Isaiah. Write these chapters down. Just scribble these down. We're going to look at the glory of the Lord. It's, it's now we're in the second half. And if you want to do a little study on this, the glory of the Lord is seen in our Savior going to Calvary. Write these chapters down. Look them up on your own. You ready? Got something to write with? John 8, John 12, John 15, John 17. I said those really quick. John 8, John 12, John 15, John 17. One more time. 8, 12, 15, 17. Throw 13 in there too. Yeah. Let me conclude this way. Eugene Peterson, the author of the message paraphrase, says this. The book of Isaiah can be called a symphony. You could call it the salvation sympathy. And here in chapter 40, we see the second of the themes. The, the first theme was in 1 through 39. That was about judgment. Now, the second theme is about comfort. Comfort. And it will point to hope. Those who wait on the Lord, those who hope in the Lord. And the hope all lands on one person. And so many of us know that person, right? That's what we have to look forward to. Incomparable hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your living, your active word, your alive word. There is none like you. And we exalt you and we praise you. I pray that as we go through this fall, you will show us our idols, our heart, our, our heart idols,
And what is an idol for one is not an idol for another. But I thank you that your word of grace, the gospel, truly satisfies, sets free, and breaks through. Let us be a people of prayer, desperate for you, as we love and serve you. And all God's people said, amen.